Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and this is TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, to be like the Bereans who searched the Scriptures after they had received it with joy to find out whether or not those things were true. Our first question today comes from our study on Wednesday night. We were in the book, oh, excuse me, last, last weekend on Sunday. We were in the book of Luke. Jesus is teaching in the temple. The elders, the scribes, the chief priest confront him, asking him by what authority he's doing the things that he's doing there. And uh, it says that he is teaching the gospel when they confront him. So we bounced off of that and talked about the fact that the gospel which Jesus taught was the same as the gospel that Paul taught and that we find other places in the epistles. That when you look at passages about Jesus teaching the gospel, Jesus says, if you believe in me, your sins will be forgiven. And whoever believes that I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me will not die. And even if he does die, he will live. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in me would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the same that is taught by Paul, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, and that if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. Well, we got a question from someone saying, didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount for uh, that, that we were supposed to be perfect? Jesus said, in, in fact, his exact words were, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I remember reading that as a new Christian. I started in the book of Matthew, and when I got there, I remember reading that and thinking, am I supposed to be perfect? And even the church I attended when I was a teenager was a Pentecostal church, part of the holiness movement, and they taught us that we could be perfect. Now, the Bible says if anyone says he doesn't have any sin, he's lying. So when those people from this holiness movement taught that they had reached sinless perfection, they were lying. But what did Jesus mean when he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? What he meant was that that is the standard. That's the standard of God. If you want to make it into heaven, you have to be perfect. And since we know that all fall short of the glory of God, and that all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to our own way, then we know that we can't make it to heaven on our own. In that same passage, Jesus says, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you're angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. He's showing us that you might think you've kept the law, but you haven't done it. It's surprising how many churches out there teach some kind of moral gospel. Be a good person, do good things, reach out and do good social work, and then you will find that you make it into heaven. When the Bible never teaches that, it teaches faith in Christ alone and, a tra and the transforming power of God that comes in. So yes, Jesus did say, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, but how do you get that perfection? By calling out on, out on his name. The Bible says, that he became sin for those who, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might discover the perfection that comes from God, the breastplate of righteousness that is not our own righteousness, but is the righteousness of Jesus. It falls right in line with the gospel, that we are saved by undeserved favor. God looks at us gives us that undeserved favor, and then we find ourselves perfect in the eyes of God. Theologians call this positional perfection. We are, we have imputed righteousness. God has imputed righteousness upon us. Now, as I walk through this world, I sin. And then I go back and ask God to forgive me, and I am cleansed. But there's a sanctifying process going on in my life. And I find that I want to do the things that God wants me to do. This is just the process of the Christian life that happens. But I do love that the gospel foretold in the Old Testament, the gospel that Jesus taught, and the gospel that was taught in the book of Acts by Paul and others, and in the epistles by Paul and others, is the same gospel. All of them tell us that we can be perfect by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ. 
So good to have you guys here with us, joining us. It's good to see all of you guys here. If you have a question, then write the word question in front of it or put a question mark or a Q and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense. Also, if you would like to, if you have a reference, add the exact reference in. Take time to stop and look up the exact reference and put it in there and we'll be able to put it up on the screen for you. So it's good to see you guys. And as so often happens, Andre got the first uh, one. Let me go ahead and clear off. Uh, let me just go back here. Let me just do this and that. And then we'll bring in Andre. So Andre says, when the Spirit gave utterance, Acts 2.42, it appears that they were speaking in other tongues, native tongues, Acts 2, 6 through 8. Was this a form of tongues or just the Spirit allowing them to speak in other languages? No, Andre, I believe that this is tongues. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's in the first couple of verses there, that he who speaks in the tongues, his spirit speaks mysteries to God. When, when they received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, there were people around them who were Jewish, but they were from all other countries, and they were speaking in the language that they knew, and they were praising God and magnifying God. In other words, a tongue wasn't a prophecy. It was them magnifying God. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter uh, goes to the, the Gentiles' house, the, the, the um, uh, centurion's house, and preaches the gospel to them, in the middle of his message, they begin to speak in tongues, and magnify God and glorify Him. What we can learn from this is that oftentimes in churches that I was in, there would be a tongue and then there would be an interpretation and the interpretation would be something like this. Thus says the Lord, I'm gonna use this church in a powerful way, more powerful than any other church has ever been used. Or thus saith the Lord, I love you, my people, put your trust in me. Now those may have been prophecies, but they weren't interpretations. Interpretations will always be us speaking mysteries to God. Now, people will say, in, in the early Pentecostal movement, there were, there were missionaries that went to China believing that they didn't have to learn the language because when they got there, they would speak in tongues. They would know the language. When they got there, they found out they didn't know the language at all. They had to spend a lot of time learning the language. So the question is, is the gift of tongues today the same as it was in Acts chapter 2, which is known languages, or is it a heavenly language? Is Acts chapter 2 the same as Acts chapter 10 for the Gentile Pentecost? Is it the same in 2 Corinthians 14, which Paul says, I would rather prophesy than speak in tongues. He says, for us to seek the best gift, because the one who speaks in tongues magnifies God, but the one who, or, or edifies himself, and the one who prophesies edifies those who are with him. And so Paul said, I would rather say uh, five words of my understanding than 10,000 words in a tongue. So it doesn't seem like they were that sign that they used to be. So it seems like there might be some differences in the gift of tongues. Now, there are also those who say that there's a prayer language, and then there's speaking in tongues that has interpretation, I don't find that in scripture. I like to have the Bible back up something. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit making intercession for us with groanings and utterances that are too deep for words. But this isn't, this groaning and utterance that is too deep for words isn't tongues at all. It's just you saying that you want to seek God and you're crying out to him and you're groaning and maybe you don't have the words, something's happening in your life, in your family, and you're feeling passionate about it, and you just groan, and God says, yes, I'll answer that prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes with us. There's a lot of misuses in tongues and interpretation in a lot of different ways, uh, all the way from too many tongues being given in a service to people speaking all at the same time, when the Bible says, let things be done decently and in order, let it be two at the most three. And that seems to be those who would prophesy and those who would speak in tongues as well. 
And so all of these are really important for us to make sure that we do what the Bible says to do. And I don't believe that tongues are done away with today, but I don't believe that they reveal themselves the same way they did in Acts chapter two. And I think that's obvious. The room that we're in isn't shaken. There's not tongues of fire on our head. So if God gave the Holy Spirit with human languages, tongues, and then later on changed it so that we had a heavenly language, Paul said, yea, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. Is there a heavenly language and are we using that? Um, and I think that that is important for us to understand all of the misunderstandings that there have been and can be. And uh, this is speaking in tongues. God brought the Holy Spirit to them with tongues. He did it in Acts chapter eight when they were in Samaria. He did it in Acts chapter 10 and so on and so forth. So let me read this and make sure I answered all your questions. The Spirit given utterance at Acts 2.4, it appears that they were speaking in other native tongues and they were. You get the citing here. Was this a form of tongues or just the Spirit allowing them to speak other languages? No, it's a form of tongues. And the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he gives them and can do what he wants to do. Uh, there have been those who suggest that because when tongues are spoken today, they're obviously not a known language. And even though you might hear that somebody was in some foreign country and somebody heard somebody speaking in tongues and they said, or they were somewhere and somebody said, that's my foreign language. Most of those are Christian myths. They just didn't happen. You just don't run into people that they happened to. Somebody knew somebody who knew somebody that it happened to. And that's not saying that somebody might not say, hey, that actually happened to me because it might have actually happened to them. Uh, but I, um, but I, but for the most part, those are Christian myths. All right. So thank you, Andre. I appreciate that. And I'm going to do something here a little bit, and then I'm going to bring in the next question. All right. So uh, thank you, Andre. I appreciate that. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, we can do a lot of studying on tongues and different things on tongues uh, by looking at 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And it's interesting that the love chapter is right there in the middle of those two. That what is more important than speaking in tongues than gifts is love. Now there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, right? So, all right. So let's bring in this uh, question from Fact Check These Hands. In fact, check these hands says, uh, with all the news about UFOs coming out, how do you believe churches will address it? Will they preach about fallen angels, Nephilim, or ignore the issue? Well, with all this information about UFOs coming out, how do I believe uh, that churches will address it? Well, I think um, that it's gonna be in a variety of ways. I, with what we do in Calvary Tucson is go through the Bible. So we're, we don't just randomly pick something, a topic to cover. We could if we wanted to, but we go through the scriptures. And so when we come across a passage that would speak to this, then we would cover it. Um, I don't know exactly how we would cover it. Are, are these real UFOs? Are these something that is given to... Um, are, are these something that are advanced weapons or aircraft that we're, that we're seeing and they don't want to let us know? Are these demonic, as some people suggest, and that what they're seeing is the, the demonic realm manifesting itself? Um, I think that when the rapture of the church happens, people are going to blame it on UFOs. And I see more and more of this coming out. Um, I, don't, I don't think the churches will completely ignore it. I think some will but I think that some will teach these other things. I don't know if fallen angels and Nephilim are the answer to this. I think it could be, but I don't know that they are. But um, I think that some of them will ignore things and some of them will actually cover things um, and how exactly they'll connect it, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, we'll just kind of keep our eye on it and see how it goes and um, yeah, and go from there. All right, so thank you. Fact check these hands. I think interesting question, and it will be interesting to see the way that we do end up covering these things. 
All right, so uh, we have a question from Brandon about marriage. Brandon says, how important is Christian marriages to have children in light of 1 Timothy 2.15? All right, so let's go there. I think I know the passage you're talking about, but let's go ahead and go there. 1 Timothy 2, I'm sure that this is it. 15, by the way, this would be, there, there are a ton of questions uh, that we could cover from 1 Timothy 2, right? This is the strongest passage on the roles for women. And um, I would love to just do a hot topic on it or a full teaching on this passage. Uh, we'll get there eventually in second and in 1 Timothy. Uh, but this is one of those strongest passages. And um, let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. I've got some new buttons here that I'm learning. Get a little bit better at this as time goes on. Um, so this whole whole thing is about Paul and women have an authority. And when you look at 1 Timothy 2, you see clearly that Paul has someone in mind. He goes from plural to singular. He's talking about somebody that's causing problems for Timothy. And Timothy is giving direction about this woman. woman. He says, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So again, there's some problems going on that he would even bring up if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So there are some women who are doing some things that shouldn't be done. Maybe even one woman who is who is the key offender that maybe is getting other women to follow along. And so he brings this up. What does it mean? She will be saved in childbearing. So there have been organizations and churches, most of them in Kentucky. Sorry if you're in Kentucky, didn't mean to offend you. But I do know that there was a headquarters of churches in Kentucky that were teaching that women had to be under a man's authority, had to wear dresses, uh, that a woman could never live on her own, that men were men when they were 13 years old, or boys were men when they were 13 years old, and there were just a, and that they had to have a lot of kids, that the command from Genesis, go out, be fruitful, and multiply the earth, was a command to every person today. And if you're not being fruitful and multiplying, then you're not doing what God told you to do. Literally, women were supposed to have babies, take care of kids. That's what women's, a woman's self-worth was in. This is an appalling teaching. It is a false doctrine. Women's self-worth is in Christ. And what about the women that have the gift of singleness? That is a, that, that seems to be something that's superior. That the, this gift of singleness that God gives to some people. And so this teaching is just unbiblical to the core. So what is, and I would use this first, nevertheless, you will be saved in childbearing. So if you don't have kids, what about someone who is born sterile? What about someone who never gets married? What about someone who never have, has kids? Are they not saved if they're saved in childbearing? Then you say, what does this mean? Well, let me get to it. That is that he's saying that a woman gave birth to the Messiah. Women are saved by childbearing. That is, as children are born in the world, the Messiah has come into the world. And I think that he's using that as an analogy. I think there are some women who are busybodies. I think there's one key woman that has stirred things up. And so Paul says, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing, speaking about that eventually a woman would give birth to the Messiah. And if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, I don't think that this is saying that all women had to have children, that all families have to have eight, 10 kids. I don't believe that this is connected in any way, shape, or form to those teachings. All right, so uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Go ahead and get back over here. And Brandon, thank you for your question. I understand why people can easily kind of misunderstand um, what that passage is, but obviously if you begin to think it through, you know it can't be being saved because people are saved uh, by faith through grace or by grace through faith, not of any works and having children would be works. So this term saved needs to mean something else or it means saved through childbearing as in Mary giving birth to Jesus and um, this would speak of the role of the woman, which is why they would, he would bring it up there, because it would speak of the role of the woman. Let me go ahead and bring in a question here from Jari. 
Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, in Revelation, it talks about 144,000. Will they appear supernaturally or be alive during that time? And if so, will they all be the same age? I know they have to be Hebrew-speaking men. Jari, good to see you. Good to have you join us today. Um, a few of these questions, there's no way I can answer. Do they, um, you say, I know they all have to be Hebrew-speaking men. Um, will they all be alive during the time? And if so, uh, oh, well, they appear supernatural at the same time. No, I, when I read this, I'm reading it that God raises up 144,000 from the Jewish nation of Israel. Remember in Israel today, there is 6 million Jews that are there. And this has only happened in the last 100 or so years. And it became a nation in 1948. And, and, and Jerusalem is now almost completely under Israeli control. As Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. The two witnesses appear in Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 11. So these 144,000, I believe, are those that are set aside by God. And, they, and, and God knows what tribes they're from. So chooses them from each of the 12 tribes. And they're ministering during those days because Israel is a, is a, is a light that shines in the world during that time. So, as I said, I don't think I can answer all of your questions. Um, well, they are they supernatural? I don't think they're supernatural. I don't think they'll all appear at one time. I believe there's a calling that God has on them. When we read Revelation, remember, it's a, it's a seven-year period. And God does a lot of work beforehand to get things together for the book of Revelation to come out. Um, and so, therefore, I don't think they'll all be the same age. And um, Hebrew-speaking men, yeah, you mean go back and read the text. I think the text specifies um, who these 144,000 are. All right, so we have a question from V City. V City, good to see you. Glad to have you join us. You mentioned generation curses are not real. How do we explain um, Gehazi, Ahab, Jeroboam, Eli, um, uh, Basha, Basha's generations. These people have curses upon their generations. All right, um, V, I wish that we would have picked just one of them. Sometimes you get so many of them here that it's hard to go back and look at one of them. And sometimes you can take something, lump it all together, something that looks like it's generational curses, but in reality, when you go back to it, it's not. And I think that what's really important, V, is that we don't ever find the term generational curses in the Bible. We find that there's a curse under the law if you don't keep it. And there are blessings if you keep it. That you'll be blessed if you keep the law and cursed if you don't. We know the children of Israel did not do it. And so that they were cursed. And the passages we were talking about, we're talking about passing the iniquity of the fathers to their children to the third and fourth generation. And that was under the law. And that Jesus hung on the cross so that we are not under a curse. He, he hung on a tree. He became a curse for us so we are not under a curse. And so the people that travel the country today or the people that preach ministries of generational deliverance because you're under generational curses are, are not setting people free. We're already free in Christ. And let's just say for the sake of your argument that all of these curses, Ahab and Eli, uh, Bash's generations, that all of them were indeed curses that God put upon generations. We're not under them today. Those were all things that happened under the law. We're set free from those in Christ. If I'm saved by Christ, how could I be under a curse? And if we were under some kind of a curse and that was causing behavioral issues with me, don't you think somewhere Jesus would have talked about it? Jesus would have prayed for someone to deliver them from generational curses. We would have seen it in the book of Acts. That there would have been somewhere where somebody was like, this person is lusting because they have generational curse or they are, are a drunkard because there's a generational curse on their life and let's deliver them. Or somewhere in the New, in the New Testament, the epistles, there would be a letter that says, when someone is drunk, make sure they don't have a generational curse or start casting out generational curses. And so my concern is that we begin to do things that are not biblical 
because we bounce off of something that has some mystery to it in the Old Testament. The iniquities going to the third and fourth generation under the law specifically were about idolatry. When you go back and read them, they are idolatry and that the family may have been involved in it and it became a family issue to the third or fourth generation. But then God says, I think it's in Exodus or Ezekiel 18, uh, 2, that he, I think that's, that, that's where it is, that he blesses generations. Oh, that, that the, the father is not to be, that the father is not to be punished for the son's sin and the son not for the father's sin. So whatever that means, it can't be punishment for their sins. So we read that we're going to pass the iniquities of the fathers down to the children of the fourth and fifth generation. And we, we read that as curse, but then we go and that's a punishment. But then we go to Ezekiel and it says, I want you to stop saying this. Our fathers ate grapes and our teeth were set on edge. In other words, our fathers did these things and we're paying. I will not punish the father for the sins of the son or the son for the sins of the father. And so we take a passage that's a little nebulous and we end up making something out of it. And then people travel around the country or in their churches have these deliverance movements for um, when, when the Bible never tells us to do that. So I think that answers that. As far as these different examples that go there, God did a lot of things to certain individuals. And I would, I would have to go back and look at each one of these compared to, you know, what, what they're saying and what the generational curse was. And so in other words, God never said that he couldn't give a generational curse. And so if he said, for example, with Ahab, none of your descendants shall sit on, your thro on the throne. I don't know that that's a curse. That's a consequence from Ahab for his relatives, but it's not a curse. Now, there may have been some other things that God said about Ahab's descendants that I'm not right now drawing to the, to my, my, the forefront of my mind. However, I still don't believe that you can make doctrine based upon an example in the Old Testament. You can make doctrine based upon the Old Testament plus what Jesus says, plus what's in the book of Acts, plus what's in the epistles. But when we start making doctrines, especially doctrines of deliverance, because the Bible tells us how to be delivered from alcoholism or how to be delivered from a stronghold that is in our lives. The Bible says to walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Bible says, so to the spirit and from the spirit, you reap life. And, um, but if you sow to the flesh from the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And so all of these things, help us to understand that there aren't, I don't believe there's, there are not generational curses. I would be happy to look at one of these references. Obviously I can't go to all of them. And like I said, I think sometimes we lump all of them together and it makes it look like a more impressive case. But when you start breaking them down, you start to realize, oh, they're all different and they're all individual. And there was nothing in those that said that God was giving generational curses to anyone else besides these people that were explained there. All right, V, I appreciate that. If you have further questions, follow-ups, I'd love to take them. All right, and if you want to break down one of these, then um, give me the passages for it and we'll break it down here online. All right, we'll take a look at it and see if we can't get any better questions. All right, um, let's see. I'm going to go ahead and bring in Kimberly's question. So I had made a reference to a theological term, imputed righteousness, and she wants to, to explain imputed. Can you explain imputed? Yeah, it means it's been given to me. It's been put inside of me. So I, the Bible says if, if anybody says they don't have any sin, that they're lying. So I know that I fail. I know that I sin. I know that even when I'm walking in what I think is righteousness, sometimes I can have pride, I can have bitterness, I can have jealousy, I can have something else that's going on in my life that keeps me from being able to do the things that I should be doing. And so um, when I come to Christ, all my sins taken away. And I stand before him clean and pure. So Hebrew says, I can go boldly to the throne of God. In, for help in a time of need. 
And that means that he has imputed righteousness upon me. Positionally, I am perfect before God. In my daily walk, I'm not. Am I getting better? I hope so. The inner man being renewed day by day while the outer man is perishing. But um, that imputed is that imputed righteousness, the imputed um, him taking away my sins and giving me that righteousness that comes from him. I also want to walk in righteousness before Christ on a regular basis. And I want to make sure that his, you know, his, his work is working inside of me so that I'm not sinning, but that when I do, I call upon his name and he forgives me and I find myself walking with him. But at the moment I say, Father, forgive me. I'm sorry. He imputes righteousness to me. It's given to me and it's out of nothing that I do, but simply asking him because of the work that Jesus did upon the cross. He who became sin, um, he, be, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. So we receive righteousness by the work that he did on the cross. Thanks, Kimberly. I appreciate the question. Again, good to see you guys. All right, I'm going to take another question here from V, V City. Uh, usually we're just taking one question as we're making our way through here, but it's good to see you uh, here with us. Question, has God forgiven all my future sins through Jesus since I am positionally perfect through faith? And this is going to come down to your position on what you believe about whether or not you can lose your salvation. Do you believe that once you come to Christ, genuinely have a commitment to him, genuinely are saved, do you believe that you could walk away? And if you believe you can walk away and you're no longer going to be saved, then you would say, well, no, then positionally, I don't think that all of my future sins have been forgiven because if I can walk away, then no. If you think that once you genuinely make a commitment to him, you will not walk away. And if you do walk away, then you will return because he'll leave the 99 and go after the one that if you generally have genuinely have made a commitment to Christ, then you will not be lost. Then that would be all of your future sins have indeed been forgiven. It doesn't mean by the way, V, that we might not have um, consequences from those sins because we could still have consequences from those sins. Um, how do I lean? I lean towards us not being able to lose our salvation. It's the only part of Calvinism that I have grown. And I've been doing this a long time and I've been looking at Calvinism and Reformed theology for a long time. And it's the only part of Calvinism and Reformed theology that I lean towards. And that is that once you are genuinely saved, even if you leave, you're going to come back because God's Jesus is going to go after the one. I lean towards that. I just find too many passages in the Bible that would speak of that. And there are passages that speak of us being kept by our faith, by God keeping us and our faith, kind of like this, this joint work between us as we walk with Christ, kind of the same way we've been saved. We receive him and he draws us, he chooses us, he calls us and he calls us and we're saved. Um, perhaps that's the way it is with this ideas, with this idea of once saved, always saved. But I think it's got to be um, what your position is. I mean, what, where, what, do you, what do you believe about it? And if you think you can lose your salvation, then you would probably have to, you'd have to come back and say that Jesus didn't die for all of my sins because I can lose my salvation. All right, thanks V, I appreciate that. I hope that that is helpful. It's again, good to see you guys here. Uh, we have a, a question from Annie. Annie simply says, is it okay to get a tattoo? So tattoos in the Old Testament were banned because they did it out of idolatry. They did it to worship and serve false gods. Uh, and again, that's the law. We have been freed from the law. We are, we are saved by a promise. We're looking at that passage tonight out of Galatians, not by the law, not by works that come from the law. And so we're not under them. And so what we would want to do today is ask, what's the purpose for the tattoo? Is it to glorify God? Is it to maybe further borderline adult um, idolatry towards a sports team? Uh, is it to somehow set yourself up 
My late wife had the tattoo. I think it was Jew 21 on her hand. And when people would see it, she'd get her hair cut or her nails done. They would ask her about it. She was able to tell them about Christ because there it says, keep yourself in the love of God. And she would be able to tell them about Christ. And so her tattoo was there to glorify God. And so we want to do everything in our lives to glorify him. We don't want to do anything out of selfish ambition. And so if you have tattoos, you're not under a con- any condemnation. If they are not modest, I would say go tat-, tat-, tat up and make them modest. And if you're going to get a tattoo, then ask yourself, what's the reason you're getting it? Why are you getting it? What's your hopes with it? What's the reason? Because the reason behind wanting to get the tattoo could make it either right or wrong. That's the way it is with a lot of things in life. You could be wanting to do it for right reasons or wrong reasons, and that's the case with tattoos. So just because somebody has a tattoo doesn't mean that they are in sin. All right, Annie, thank you. And we are not under the law, so the passages out of the Old Testament that would speak in the law, there's a lot of things that the law said not to do that we do. Not the least of them to have a ham sandwich, which the Bible tells us that we do not, uh, would not be able to do. All right, Mod Squad, I like that, Keith. All right, uh, thanks to you moderators for being here. I appreciate that. If you are joining us for the first time, really glad you're here. If you have a question, write the word question in front of it, write a cue before it, and then write out your question, read it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Our desire is to look at God's word through the lens of scripture to see what the Bible has to say. I also will remind you that I'm answering things off the top of my head, So if I had time to prepare, I'd be able to go back and look things up a little bit better. And uh, so this might be just a place where a discussion starts and then we end up bringing it up again, kind of like we did the generational curses uh, that we talked about just a little while ago. All right. Um, So let's... um, Let's bring in uh, this question here about tongues from T-Bone, spiritual warrior in Jesus Christ. T-Bone, pastor, did speaking tongues come from the tower where everyone started speaking in other languages in Genesis? So that would be the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where man gets together in rebellion against God and decides to build a tower up into the heavens. And again, this is for idolatry. And God comes down and confuses the language so that, well, I think that without the confusion of the languages, that technology would have advanced so much quicker, so much faster. And so he confused the languages and that slowed all of that down, but also didn't allow them to be able to pass on their false doctrines, which and for them was the building of this tower, this accomplishment up into the heavens, which was some form of idolatry, has nothing at all to do with speaking in tongues. It was something entirely different. All right, so thank you, uh, T-Bone. I appreciate that. T-Bone, spiritual warrior in Jesus Christ. Uh, I do appreciate that. We have a question from uh, Andy and Tanya. Question, there seems to... um, to me, almost an epidemic of children identifying as non-binary. Yeah, and transgender, with parents agreeing with it. Do you think the church has a responsibility to address uh, this issue? Um, Yeah. Not only do I think the church has a responsibility to address the issue, I think the Bible does address it. And so we want to address, we want to address issues as they come up in Scripture, and we as a church teach through the Bible, And there are places where things like this can come up. But both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the Bible talks about men not dressing like women and women not dressing like men. Like you've heard the passage that says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. And for women that have their head uncovered, they might as well go ahead and shave it all off. Why was Paul so upset with these women that didn't have their head covered? Because in their day, a woman covered her head and a man had shorter hair. And so growing out the hair was looking feminine. It wasn't a fact of growing out the hair that was a problem. People did that uh, for the vow of a Nazarite. The problem was that they um, were looking male and female. And so I think the Bible does address it. 
And I think that this culture is embracing this concept and this idea. And quite frankly, it's sad. Um, I don't, you know, parents agreeing with it. I don't know about that. Certainly in some cases, right? But not in other cases. Do parents agree with it? Sometimes it's a heartbreaking thing for a parent to find out that their children are going down this road. Even if they don't love Christ, even if they're non-Christian, they just don't know what to do. It is certainly something that is growing in our culture, but oftentimes when there's this kind of a growth, there's something that snaps back. It's been around for a long time, but hey, they're wanting to put it into schools. This is a battle that's taking place in the schools. And so, yeah, I do think that the church has a responsibility to address these issues. We've addressed them over time in different passages, and maybe we'll address them here again pretty soon as things come up. I like to go through the scriptures because I believe that God is giving us certain places and times where we seek him uh, through certain passages. Uh, But if we come to a passage where it obviously speaks of it, we'll speak of it and we'll look at cultures when when they need to be spoken about. So yeah, it really is um, tragic. It truly is. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, let's see, let me go ahead and bring this in. Well, I don't see, I'm just trying to see if there's any other. So we have a question from YouTube. Sexual morality in this passage is not accurate. Let me just go ahead and bring this in and let me see if I can work through this just a little bit. Um, obviously I don't know what verse you're talking about. Maybe it's in the comment section. Revelation, uh, looks like Revelation 2.20. Let me go ahead and go there and see if I can figure this out. Revelation 2.20, last book in the Bible. Oops, let me get there again. Revelation 2.20. Let me read this to see what what it is. Um, Nevertheless, Yeah, let's go ahead and and, um, let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. So this is Revelation 2.20. And um, sorry to do that there. It's it's the corrupt church um, to the angel of Thyatira. Uh, These things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like flaming brass. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith and your patience. And as for the works the last are more, let's see, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idol. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Um, so let me just go ahead and go back here. I, um, <clears throat> I'm not so sure that's not about sexual morality. Uh, it may be that he's using it as a spiritual analogy. There's other places where sexual morality is used as a, an analogy against idolatry. An idolater is called, is, is said, um, you, you know, you, you adulterer at heart because they're committing idolatry against God because our faithfulness is to be against God. And so it may be an analogy there. I would need to spend a lot more time. It's interesting. It's only been two years since we've gone over the seven letters to the churches. But as I read it, I go, yeah, there's some wheels turning there, but it's kind of coming up slowly. So I'm not sure that it's not completely about sexual morality and that it may indeed be an analogy. And um, maybe I'll take some time to look that up and see if we can return back to that again at another time. All right. And thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Came to us from YouTube. Um, Albert has a question here. Albert, good to see you. Albert says in Revelation 16, 12 through 14, It says, demonic spirits lead the kings of the world into battle on the day of the Lord. Aren't these armies battling Satan 
If so, why would he bring armies against himself? All right, so that's a good question and one that I don't know that we'll be able to dive completely into. Again, um, let's take a look though. Maybe we will. Let me see if I can get out of here. What did I do? All right. So let's go to Revelation 16. starting in verse 12. And good to have you here with us, Albert, by the way. Always good questions. So this is the sixth bowl that's poured out. And um, let's go ahead, I'll put it up on the screen here and we'll read it. So the sixth bowl is poured out, Euphrates River dries up. Then the, the sixth angel, did I get to the right place? 16, was it 16? I mean, I just go ahead and check here. Yep, 16, okay, good. Um, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and the waters were dried up so that the ways of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw an unclean spirit, frogs coming up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world and gather them to battle on the great day of the Almighty. Uh, yeah, so let me just come back here and we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, so the book of Revelation, you want to read it as literal as you can, but it's going to create some kind of a struggle and a difficulty as you're reading it, because you're going to find yourself uh, looking at it and trying to read it literal and going, what exactly does that mean? So frogs coming out of the mouth of the Antichrist and, um, these representing spirits and what they represent. So it takes a long time to stop and evaluate it and look at it. And I don't know that they're battling against Satan on the day of Armageddon in that day, in their great day. Again, I need to go back and look at it a little bit more in context. Um, I don't know if it's Satan causing demons to fight against Satan. I think something else is happening there. And um, I just would need to be able to take a little bit more time. Sorry, again, answering questions off the top of your head. Uh, you're not always able to come to something that's as complicated as this is and be able to go back and read it and look at it. And um, hopefully I'll be able to take a look at it later on, Albert, and to see what those questions, um, what those questions are. All right. Um, so we have a question about Deuteronomy 5.9. Um, I think the statement, which was part of the law, I believe it is still true today. All right. Well, let me go ahead and bring it in here. Alex, we've been talking about generational curses for the last couple of weeks and had questions about it. Um, again, I take the stand that there are no generational curses today, especially if you're in Christ. When you come to Christ, you are forgiven. The Holy Spirit resides in you. Jesus hung on the tree, became a curse for us. And even if there were generational curses, even though the Old Testament never uses that term, and I think that's really important for us to understand, that it just never uses it. And um, what, what does it say? Let me go ahead and bring that up for you here. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 5, 8, and 9. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. All three of the passages that speak of passing the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and the fourth generation, all three of them talk about idolatry. Idolatry is the sin and idolatry seems to be something that was a family that was done as a family and it was passed on to this family the iniquity this sin was passed on and maybe it was because they were under the law and not supposed to be under idolatry and so when they broke the law and began to commit these sins of idolatry then it was passed on to the third and fourth generation and so let's go ahead and see what it says here. It says, you shall not make for yourself any carved images, a likeness of anything in heaven or above or that is beneath and that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Again, they have said, Israel said, if we don't keep the law, we'll be under a curse. So is this God just giving them what they're looking for by allowing it to be in their family for third and fourth generations underneath the law? 
I like Exodus. It's the same thing. It talks about carved images. It talks about all of those. But look, when you come to the end of this, it says, visiting the iniquity of our fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth uh, generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to the thousands to, who, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So if you love God, how could you have a generational curse? If his mercy is given to thousands, much more than three or four generations, but much more than that. So this doesn't say anything about a generational curse. And never is the term generational curse used in the Bible. Neither do you find Jesus ever delivering someone from a generational curse or it happening in the book of Acts or being written about. When, you, when someone's got this sin, they have a generational curse, bring them in and set them free from that generation. You don't find those things. And so this becomes something extra biblical. And I realize sometimes these are rooted in churches that we've been in or maybe rooted in us having someone pray on us and deliver us from a generational curse. And we feel like, wow, well, I think that that really took care of things. I think that I was delivered from that generational curse and then my life really came together. But anecdotal evidence, in other words, your own personal experiences are not how we build doctrine and neither should it be the way you build doctrine. Just because you were delivered when someone prayed for you to be delivered or someone prayed about a generational curse or it's been in your church or it's been taught doesn't make it right. If the Bible doesn't cover the issue at all, then it's something that I think that we need to stay away from. And at this point, maybe somebody could show me something different. Hey, I'm open. I'm on a truth quest. I really am. I want to know what the truth is. But at this point, I don't see anything that shows us anything different. Um, that would be generational curses. All right, Alex, but thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Let's go ahead and look for a few more. If you're joining us here for the first time, really good to have you guys here. Um, and if you have a question, then go ahead and write the word question out and then write out your question and then reread it a couple of times. Um, but it is good to see you and good to have you guys joining us. Uh, we have a question from Amber Sky. Amber says, question, I heard Russia fired at Israel aircraft and it had me wondering, do you believe if Russia does start a war in Israel, we will be seeing the end times prophecy war uh, on Israel, the, the Gog and Magog war, I think of Ezekiel 38, 39. <clears throat> and is that war the start before the great tribulation? The, the only thing that I would caution, Amber, yes, I think that we're seeing things unfold today. We see that Russia has military operations in Syria. Syria shares a border with Israel. And it's, it's no uh, secret that Russia backs the enemies of Israel and has from the very beginning. And so the, that this nation from the far north, and if you go furthest north from Israel, you get to Russia, is going to come against Israel in the last days as prophecies that are foretold. Could we be seeing that happen today? And could it develop into it? Maybe, certainly, it could it be happening. Maybe it's even probable, but could it be something different? Could God be doing something different? And could this just be a different time? If we were alive during World War II and we saw Hitler killing the Jewish people the way that he did, six million in the Holocaust, we would say he's the Antichrist, but he turned out to be a Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. And so the only caution that I have is, let's not go too far in acting like this is, and I see it happen a lot, especially in prophetic ministries, where, you know, you get a lot of attention when you talk about prophecy. And understandably so, I'm curious about it. And I spend time looking into it on my own. But a lot of times there's just a lot of hype that is kept up and it's about what's happening today and nothing changes when it comes to the kingdom of God. And I've seen this all the way back to 19, what, 1970, let's see. So Israel became a nation in 48, 58, 68, 78, 88, so 81, um, that many people said Jesus was gonna come back in 1981. In fact, Chuck, Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, uh, Calvary Chapels that are around the world today, 
believed that Jesus was going to come back in 1981. I don't know that it was a prophecy, but it seemed to be something he believed because the gen biblical generation is 40 years, Israel became a nation in 48. It all looks good on paper, but Jesus didn't come back in 81. And in the 1800s, there was the great disappointment where they talked about Jesus coming back and doing all of these things, but then he didn't come back. And people had sold their goods and gave their money, or sold all their, their things, gave their money to the church. And why they would sell all their things and give their money away instead of just going out and doing the work of the gospel, I'm not sure. But I would caution against that. I, I um, years ago, was looking at, uh, watching the news, and I watched Ethiopian Jews getting off of airplanes, this is back in the 80s, and kissing the ground. And I thought, Ethiopian Jews coming from Ethiopia. And I remembered a passage where God said, I will call my people out of Ethiopia. And I went back and I read it in the Bible. I'm like, I'm, I'm reading prophecy. I'm seeing prophecy as I'm reading it in my Bible, written over 2,000 years ago, sometimes, you know, 3,000 years ago, 35, uh, um, 25, 27, 2,800 years ago, and I'm seeing those things come to pass today in front of my eyes. And that's pretty amazing. But a lot of time has passed since the early 80s when that happened until now, early 2020s. A lot of time has passed. And so we just got to be careful that we don't end up making it something that's, you know, super spectacular when in fact it's not. Sells a lot of books, gets a lot of attention, gets a lot of clicks online. And so people are, are sensational. Nevertheless, we should be looking at these things, aware of them, and just be careful that we don't fall into the whole sensational trap. All right, Amber, I appreciate your question. Thank you very much. Um, that is, let's see if we can take another question. If we've got a quick one that we can take. Let's take this one question from Frack. Check these hands. And this will be our last question today. All right. So, um, maybe I'll take, maybe I'll take two. All right. Question. If we're not raptured before digital currency is mandated, do you believe Christians will be penalized and or allowed to spend currency on tithes, Bibles, donations, ministries, etc.? Well, I think they're doing it today. So you can get a, uh, uh, a cryptocurrency wallet. You can load it up. You can, you can deposit it with certain companies like exchanges, which is like a bank for cryptocurrency. You can get a credit card that when you buy things, you're buying them with cryptocurrency. So they're already finding ways to make it happen today. So people are, are already buying them. Um, I think the cryptocurrency will be something in the future, programmable money. They can make it go away after a certain amount of time. They can give it to a certain person. Uh, I think that there are a lot of things here that really give us a sign of the last days and what the last days will be like. Um, and so just to look at your question, if we're not raptured before digital currency is mandated, do you believe Christians will be penalized, not allowed to spend currency on tithes, Bibles, donations, and other ministries? Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, maybe during the reign of the Antichrist, there would be some things like that. I mean, they're not going to be able to buy or sell unless you worship him. So, yeah, I don't know whether those kind of mandates would come about or not. I just think it's one of those questions you can't answer. Um, Alex uh, brings up a question. This will be our last question. Question, follow up on V's question. What does 1 Peter 1.18 speak of the sins of the father? So let me go ahead and go to my Bible here and we'll look up that passage. 1 Peter 1.18. All right, let me get there and I'll bring it up and we'll, we'll look at it together. 118. All right, 1 Peter 1.18, right? So let's go ahead and look it up. Hope it's the right verse. Uh, so this is 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Um, and I would like to look at it in other translations, but... I don't think this has anything to do with generational curses. Knowing that you were redeemed from corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct 
received by traditions from your fathers. So in other words, your father was an idolater and you were an idolater. Your father was not godly. You were not God living godly. And you grew up in that family and you learned those things. And this may very well be a connection to the iniquity of the fathers being passed on to the children of the third and fourth generation. They're living in homes where these sins of idolatry are taking place. And so it's passed on by that to the third and the fourth generation. And God allows that to happen. So I don't think that this has anything to do with generational curses. Like I said, I'm open. If there's a verse that really connects generational curses, then I'm fine on looking at them and seeing what they are. But I don't believe that this is that verse. I think it's just talking about them being delivered out of the traditions that they received from their fathers or the sins that they had received from their fathers. I don't think it's a connection at all uh, to generational curses. All right, Alex, thank you very much. And uh, thank you guys. I appreciate you. Uh, all for joining us today on our uh, Truth Quest podcast. Uh, it's been good being able to spend some time with you. Stay close to Jesus. Keep loving him. Um, love the interaction today. Love the questions. And um, we can continue on down the same thoughts. We can go ahead and, and pick these apart. I think that's a good thing about having uh, these Q&As a couple times a week. Uh, we can go back and look at them. We can come back and we can talk them through. Our desire again is to discover the truth of what God has said, to live for him wholeheartedly, to make sure that we are searching the scriptures to find out the things that God wants for us and how God wants us to live, living for him with everything that we have. So stay close to Jesus, keep loving him, all right? And um, God bless you guys, love you. Uh, I love the questions, love the community that's being developed here. All right, guys, we'll see you later on. I'm gonna go ahead and sign out. God bless you.